everyone. Welcome back to the Galaxy's Greatest Podcast about the two great 90s space station shows. This is Babylon 5 versus DS9. We are part of Uncanny Treks. I am Bob in Cascadia. That's Matt in the Southland. How you doing tonight, Matt? Doing all right. Had to do a little research for this episode. Uh, passing through Gethsemane. Uh, how, do you, how do you say it, Bob? Gethsemane. Ah, God damn it. Gethsemane. Gethsemane. Anyway, this is the garden like Jesus was arrested in, right? Yes. Okay, so yeah, you have to go back to the Bible and figure that stuff out. And I'm not the most Bible literate person in the world, so I had to make sure I understood the, the reference here. You got to read that good book, son. You got to <laughs> read it. You got to memorize it. Is that what this is all about, Bob? Is Babylon 5 a way to uh, bring me back to the Lord? Is that what this is? <laughs> Uh, I, I don't know what the new age people say about like bring you to the whatever and in, in the new age religions, but it's more that I would say that it's a way to get you, get you back to the Lord. Oh, thanks Bob. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So we're talking uh, Babylon five season three, episode four, passing through Gestinomy. Ah, God damn it. I could say it before you made me self-conscious about it. Passing through Gestinomy. Uh, which originally aired on the 29th of November, 1995. And then we're talking about Indiscretion, which which is DS9 Season 4, Episode 5, and originally aired on the 23rd of October, 1995. And so in the A plot of Passing Through Gethsemane, one of Brother Theo's monks, Brother Edward, is having strange visions of black roses and bloody wall writing. Yep, and then in the B plot, we have the cast is somewhat freaked out by Lyda Alexander's return from the Vorlon homeworld. Just so you know, this episode of B5 was actually directed by Adam Nimoy. I did not know that. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. Son of son of Leonard Nimoy played Spock. Yes, 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 yes. So uh, we have playing Brother Edward, uh, Brad Dorif. Uh, uh, Brad Dorif's one of my favorite character actors. You got a favorite performance from him, Matt? Yeah, Bob, he's the voice of Chucky. Yeah, yeah, he 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 do be that. He do be that. Um, he's pretty famous for playing homicidal maniacs. He uh, yeah, like Chucky. <laughs> yes, like Chucky. He's also the lead in the film Wise Blood from the late seventies. Really good film. Uh, he's a psychic killer in an X Files episode. Uh, Luther Lee Boggs, I believe his name in that one is. And then uh, he plays a crewman who turns out to be a serial killer in a few episodes of Star Trek Voyager. Uh, so really great roles, including Chucky, all of which he's a homicidal maniac in. And then, you know, honorable mention to the time he played the doc on Deadwood. Uh, not a homicidal maniac in that one. I mean, that's just, that's just the role he was born to play, Bob. The voice, the manners, it really works. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine that, like, growing up and people are like, man, you're not really a homicidal maniac, but you'd be really good in movies as a homicidal maniac. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, yeah, and then going to have a career where that's like all you play. Yep, yep, and you know, spoilers in uh, in this episode, he does indeed turn out to be a former homicidal maniac. Exactly. They just, you just you just walk in and you're automatically cast. Uh, you're getting you're really you're getting so you're getting cast typed as a homicidal maniac. That's just everybody sees you as that. Oh man! At first you couldn't say Gethsemane, and now you're really struggling on homicidal. It's going to be a hard episode. <laughs> I, I, I curse you. I used to be able to say that word. I swear to God. Yeah. You're, you're welcome. Uh, all right. You're, you're berating, uh, though, Bob. Your berating is much like how Brother Theo berated Sheridan over his new age mumbo-jumbo. 
Yep, yep. And then he checkmate to, checkmated him in the opening of the episode. That was pretty good. I, I love seeing uh, Sheridan and his uh, New Age mumbo-jumbo get brought low. That's, uh, that's fun. Yeah, one, one thing I can point out here, Bob, though, is that if you actually look at the chessboard, they went through the trouble of actually setting up a scenario that was correct. So props nice, to whoever nice. came up with that. A lot of times it just makes shit up, you know. Yeah, I, I didn't look that close, but so it's a it's a move set that's plausible enough for Ivanova and uh, Sheridan to not see it coming. Exactly. Oh, interesting. It's brilliant. Interesting. Brilliant. Going back to what you're talking about with Sheridan, didn't in the previous episode he said he's like open minded and eclectic is his thing? That's that's his belief oh, I th- system. I thought he said that in this episode, but I'm, I'm, he said similar things before. He's very eclectic, open minded about things. Indeed, indeed. Um, so what did you think of uh, the reveal of uh, Lyda Alexander and her return from the uh, cautious homeworld? Yeah, it made me wonder why Alexander was selected for this, but I'm guessing it has something to do with her connection to Kosh from the TV movie. Yeah, I would uh, say it's a combination of the fact that she's a telepath and that she saw Kosh's true form in the TV movie. Yeah, and I also made note that when Franklin examines Alexander, like we discover that all her previous medical issues had vanished, and uh, she she also has gills. So, yeah, we you found know, that out at the end. She's got gills now. What's up with that? I mean, yeah, she has gills so she can breathe, I guess, on the home world. Do they, can they just magically give her gills, or is that a... Well, I mean, clearly they are an advanced species that knows how to do genetic engineering. Hey, why didn't Franklin notice that? Because they can also conceal their work. Because you'll notice <laughs> that the gills only came out when she was, you know imbibing the energy from Kosh, let's say. And also, I'm kind of wondering, did she actually, I might be thinking too much into this, but did she actually die on that uh, vessel or ship or whatever she was on? No. And then, no. okay. Only only one person is coming back from the grave in this show, Matt. Oh. Spoilers, uh, maybe. Yeah, yeah. It's our Lord Jesus Christ, Matt. Uh, have you heard about him? <laughs> yes. I have heard about him. <laughs> oh, man. In Valen's name. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, you're not actually wrong when you say that. I know, Bob. That's what I'm saying. It, it's, it's pretty easy to catch on to this. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Like, like they, they've been talking about Valen the whole, like, all the way up to this point. Valen is like yeah. the Jesus. And this episode yeah. even kind of gives you confirmation because uh, Lanier legit says that Valen was not born of a Minbari. So, yes. They're kind of giving you a lot of way here in this episode. I'm a little concerned. I, learning who do you think uh, Valen is, Matt? I don't know, Bob. That I don't know. Okay. Not a clue. Okay. I mean, I could make some, there's some speculation here, but I, I don't know. You're going to learn. You're going to come into the good light of uh, our Lord Jesus Christ uh, slash uh, Valen. Yeah, I mean, it. it th- this has been building for a while now. I've picked up on like that Valen is basically Jesus, and you've got a whole uh, theological thing going on here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm what did you mm-hmm. think of that uh, Centauri telepath? I guess this is the kind of first time we've really seen one up close. I mean, I was like, meh. I mean, I knew they existed, but are they regulated by the Psych Corps? No, that's Psych Corps only humans. Psych Corps only humans. So you can be of another race and just be like, yeah. Yeah, the other, the other telepaths regulate their their uh, teeps in their own way. I they I forget what they they said a little about how the Minbari and the um, the Centauri handle 
they're telepaths, but I honestly can't remember can't remember what they've said about it. But no, no, the Psychor is a is a uniquely human institution. Yeah, I mean, I want I just wondered that. I mean, it makes sense though because they I guess Earth has to regulate their telepaths, but like. Do we ever meet any like uh, versions of the Psychor from the other races? Uh, I don't think they have like Psychors in the same way that, that like they have like regulatory systems, but I don't think they're like Psychors. Okay. Telepaths are a big deal, but alien telepaths aren't that big a deal in the show. Like we'll we'll see some more, but I can't I, I can't remember anything very specific about them. So there's not like an Satori Besser or anything. No, I don't. I don't think so. I like I said. I can't remember how they say the they organize the Centauri or the Minbari telepaths, but it's. I I don't get the feeling it's as like corporate and like you know spooky as in like intelligence agency spooky as the Psychor. So sounds like we have some novels we could write here, Bob. Let's get to oh, it. Oh, they they've written well. They wrote them about Bester and the Psychor. I don't know if they. I don't know how much like the Centauri telepaths factor into the the novel trilogy about the about Londo being the emperor and then there's a couple novels set on Minbar. I don't know how much Minbari telepaths may factor into that. See Bob, I'm going to write a novel about a Centauri telepath like Bester, but he's played by George Takei. I mean, Matt, if you can't even uh, get your uh, CW reboot of Babylon 5, how are you going to get your fanfic published? (laughs) Very true. Still annoyed they shelved that. Damn. Thanks for reminding me. I, I don't know. Like, I didn't want to be negative at the time, but, like, I, sh- I, don't, I don't know that the CW was going to be making a good Babylon 5 show. Yeah, it, it, I don't know. Part of me is like, I just, I just want to see more, but at the same time, like, eh, maybe there's a reason they shelved it. Maybe there's, like, more to it than we know. They pretty, they, they hung it up to dry pretty quick. They were like, eh, put that back on the shelf. <laughs> I don't want to be disrespectful to JMS, because, like, Babylon 5 is a pretty good show, you know, pretty great show did a lot of cool stuff. He's done some other interesting stuff. He's done some other awful stuff. So I don't want to be, I don't want to be disrespectful, but I kind of don't want to see JMS do Babylon five again. I, I'd either, I either want like another show in the universe or I would want, if it is going to be rebooted, which I don't really have a strong desire for it to be rebooted. But if it were to be rebooted, I would want somebody who was not JMS to write it. Honestly, you know who I'd want to do it. JJ Abrams. I mean, he's already uh, ruined Star Trek and Star Wars. Why not? Why not have him ruin Babylon Five? Get J.J. Abrams in there, and Joss Whedon together. I hear Doctor Who's looking for a new show. J.J. <laughs> Abrams could do that too. Oh God, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't know, Bob. I I, I need to watch the whole series before I make a complete judgment about about yeah, JMS. It will be curious to see once you get to the end how you feel about. A, a Babylon 5 reboot then and uh, how you feel about the prospect of JMS doing it or not doing it. Yeah, I'd be interested to see like where this, I'm interested to see where this goes. That's one good thing about this show though, Bob, is like I, I am kind of drawn into it. It took me a while to like really get into the show, but now I'm like wanting to watch the next set of episodes and like try my best to hold back because I want to be able to still do the weekly, you know, podcast without me knowing everything that's going to come up. Oh man. I didn't realize this project would be a, a whole thing of me instilling impulse control into you. Yes, Bob. It is torture. <laughs> and speaking of torture, Bob. Speaking of torture. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, and speaking of JMS, uh, one thing we've noticed over the course of the show is he really does like to string his characters up on chains in order for them to be tortured. 
Yeah, it really it looked a lot like the same way that Sheridan was tortured in the Inquisitor. You know, poor Edward got to live out that whole Jesus thing he was talking about, where he waited in the garden, which was Babylon Five. I get it. So you see this? I get it. He's waiting in Babylon Five. They finally came and got him, and then he was tortured, sacrificed. That explains the whole title. Put well, it all together. I mean, I don't know that that explains the title. I think his monologue to uh, Lanier and um, Delenn about the Garden of Gethsemane explains the title. He had to explain it to us heathens, Bob. That's that's why. You gotta remember yeah, they didn't no, have. They didn't have Google saying, back then, Bob. I could I'm just, just Google that. You don't have to make the connection between the crucifixion and the torture to get the connection because <laughs> Brother Edward already made that connection for yeah. you at yeah, the beginning he, of the episode, Matt. Bob, I like shows that connect the dots for me. I like to watch the dots being connected. I don't want to do it myself. I mean, arguably, that's good when you're talking about world building. Arguably, I, I don't know how good that is when you're talking about thematic content. <laughs> yeah, they didn't have Google back then, Bob. So you could just Google the story of the Jesus. You had to go back and like look in the Bible. No, back then they had a Bible in the house, man. You could just open it. <laughs> uh, that uh, that blessed non-heathenish time of 1995. Yeah. Uh, speaking of uh, bringing things together and making things clear, I did like how in this episode we have a kind of parallel opening and closing. In the opening, Brother Theo is owning Sheridan about chess and theology. In the closing, Brother Theo is owning uh, Sheridan about how he needs to forgive Edward's murderer. So I thought that was good. Theo's just bringing the faith of the heart to be five, Bob. <laughs> Dropping all these lessons on Sheridan. Hey, man, Sheridan needs him. He needs to give up his new age syncretism and find his way to the Lord. So I, I do want to point out that this episode brings back the death of personality. And this seems like the go-to method of criminal reformation, but I'm starting to question its effectiveness. If like that one, if a telepath can just break through and retrieve the previous memories. I mean, it seems kind of like, eh, wouldn't these people, like, wouldn't their family members, like, seek out a telepath to try to, you know, bring them back to who they were, which defeats the whole purpose of death of personality? Uh, I would say no for two reasons. One reason is that telepaths are tightly controlled in the Babylon 5 world and rare and expensive. Um, and I think it's pointed that, you know, they have to go, the guy, the killer has to go to a Centauri telepath, not to a human telepath to do this. Yeah. And then, I mean, also, like, if you just look at it, I, I presume the death of personality in the kind of dystopian future of Babylon 5 is applied in the same way that the death penalty is applied in contemporary America, which is to say that it mostly applies to uh, poor people, uh, you know, who have limited <laughs> family structures and not much resources. And so even when uh, these people who've undergone the death of personality have have family they're unlikely to have the resources to find an alien telepath to break the conditioning that was like the most inappropriate laugh that's ever come out of my mouth sorry about that we live in a totally we live in a totally unequal state it's it's you gotta laugh about it or you cry yeah it. it's pretty bad that i laughed at that but i'm like yeah that, that's true only poor people get the death penalty so how the hell are they gonna find a centauri telepath and then hire them and you know get all that done well, I, I mean, also, like, I if you presume that the Babylon 5 justice system is a little is a little more just than ours, um, presumably all the people getting the death of personality or most of them did do it. And, you know, like, 
it seems like a lot of them are better off with the death of personality, which is an uncomfortable thing. But like, you know, Brother Edward's a, he's a nice uh, monk. He's, you know, in service to people now. Like, eh. like even if he had family, would the family really want him back the way he was? Yeah, this is like some one flew over the cuckoo's nest type stuff, though. Like giving these, like you're not really giving them a lobotomy, but at the same time, I mean, you're giving a completely different personality. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is interesting. I, I guess it does bring up. It's kind of interesting because in some ways it parallels the death penalty pretty precisely, especially with like what Garibaldi says about it in this and other episodes. In other ways, it raises like moral and philosophical questions arguably you know that are even more sticky than the ones the death penalty raises yeah and i'm also supposed to believe bob that there is like a device on the station that can do this but it hasn't been yeah, stolen they did it in season one right yeah and it hasn't been stolen and used as a weapon yet which i'm assuming is going to happen at some point i i don't know i mean like how much utility would it have as a weapon? Like, if you were willing to do a death of personality to someone, wouldn't you also be willing to kill them? Probably. I think the problem. I think the problem I'm having is that I'm imagining it's a device that you can carry around with you, but it's probably more like an electric chair. Yeah, yeah. It's like an like yeah. There's not really a problem of people like stealing electric chairs or lethal injection uh, right. setups. At least that I'm aware of. Yeah. So my argument's invalid. My bad. You're right. I kept thinking of like a neuralizer type thing from Men in Black. Would you like a, Would you like to hear my contrarian take about the death penalty, Matt? Sure, Bob. I can cut it if it's not okay. Sure, sure. So I, I, I think the death penalty is not objectionable in and of itself. I think the fact that it's racially and economically uh, dis, uh, disproportionately applied is a problem. So my proposal is that we means test the death penalty, that we set a, a certain bottom income threshold and nobody who makes below that income threshold can get the death penalty. That's my solution. Hmm. Interesting. I would also be interested in expanding the death penalty for certain forms of white-collar crime. There's so much wrong with this, but I, I'm, uh, I'm trying to figure out where I want to start. Don't you mean there's so much right with this? <laughs> how are they going to verify all that income? Like, what are they going to do? Like, they're going to go... <laughs> Tax records, dog. Like, we pay income tax. The government has your tax records. So what if they haven't been paying their taxes and then they go kill somebody? Are you familiar with the, the phrase forensic accountants? Yeah, I know. So they're going to go it back and look pun, at... It becomes a pun in, the, in this sense. It, it has a dual function. So, Bob, what, what's your low-income threshold? Because apparently in the United States, uh, our current administration believes low income is less than $120,000 a year. Yeah, I, 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 I would agree with that. Uh, I'm willing to set it lower, but I, that's, you know, set it up, set it at a 120,000 a year. That seems about right. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to go, I'm going to start killing people just because I know there's no death penalty. I just know prison for the rest Matt, of my life. I, I want to see, uh, I want to see the rich die and you know, I'm, I'm willing for the state to be a mechanism for that. Gotcha. I'd also, I'd also be, you know, if you have a certain amount of assets and say crypto or NFTs, you could qualify for the death penalty too. Shut up. <laughs> now it's getting cut, Bob. Now it's getting cut. <laughs> I, what, we'll figure out whatever your asset profile is and we'll make it, we'll make it above that, Matt. Don't worry. Don't worry. <laughs> well, my thing with the death penalty though, at least in America, is the whole concept of death row 
and just the length of time people sit on death row, just, I don't understand it. Like, well, yeah, it's one of those like crazy things. Cause it seems really excessive to have people wait like 10, 20 years to die. But on the other hand, like it would seem like proposals to speed that up would probably like compromise the thoroughness of them getting to, you know, exhaust their appeals, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a, there's a real kind of paradox to it. I think the whole waiting on death row would probably be worse than the actual death, maybe. Because, I mean, you know, yeah. you're, yeah, well, you pretty much have an expiration an date. It's a moral so. case that, like, most people who do serious, like, serious violent crime are usually, not only are they do they tend to be poor men, but they tend to be poor young men of a certain age. Like, you know, not a whole lot of people over, like, 25 and definitely over 30 are doing serious violent crime and so you're keeping this person alive until they're a wholly different person in a you know in a lot of important senses they've you know they've probably changed and developed a lot that you know a person who did a murder at 18 is probably would probably never do a murder at age 38 but you're keeping them alive that long and then you're killing them and it just you know it it adds a kind of in an important philosophical sense it's like are you even killing the same person who did the crime it's like a death of personality, Bob, but without the device. And then we put them to death. Yes, yes, that's uh, that's true, Matt. That's true. That's, that's deep. All right. Yeah. So, Bob, let's talk about these spirit dicks that were put inside Lita. Yeah, yeah. So, so from the so from the very serious to the still se- presented seriously, but also kind of weird. Yeah. So we uh, we see Kosh's. Uh, uh, we'll just say tendrils reaching into uh, Lita's eyes and mouth. Yeah, it was like super dirty. I, 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 I mean, I, I giggled a little bit at it because I was like, this is really weird. I'm assuming that the light he is pumping into her is some sort of like clarity to the universe or some That's a knowledge. Good use of verb there, Matt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know what that's supposed to be. But I guess uh, my real question is is Kosh getting info from Alexander or is Alexander getting info from Kosh? Or is it a mutual thing? I think it's a mutual thing. Like, I assume that I, I, I think I can, you're not going to learn that you'll learn a little more context for this, but you're not going to learn that much about this. But I would assume that this is both like Alexander's kind of way of reporting in. And also like, she's definitely like getting, you know, some energy or satisfaction or knowledge or like, you know, telepathic rapport with Kosh through this. So it seems like it's kind of mutual. Some gratification. Yeah, yeah, some gratification, if you will. When I was watching this, the throat thing, I got it confused with us watching Picard, and for some reason I thought Gerardi had the throat thing. But uh, no, it was more clean. Yeah, but it was it was, it was was Alexander. So I, I thought I'd made it up, and I was like, wow, my brain is sick, but no, apparently it was, it was this show that had the, the uh, throat thing. Uh. Interesting. Interesting. Also, I want to point out too that I also want to point out too that the the bright eyed shit, like from the eyes Mm -hmm. and everything, reminds me of kind of what happened to Sheridan and Knives. But I don't know if there's a any kind of like connection. Which one was that? That was the one where Sheridan, like this being inhabits Sheridan, and he gets to see the future. So is that the one where he get? It's like a follower of the shadows, and it possesses him from that weird ship. That yes, and it re- and he releases it at the end. Remember, and it goes yeah, off. Yeah, yeah. Okay. The sunset. I was wondering if it was the same connection. I wasn't. 
thinking about that, but that's an interesting connection. And I mean, there are a lot of ways that the shadows and the Vorlons are kind of parallel. So okay. yeah, I think I think you're I think that's a good connection to make. Yeah, I just, it looked Even the same. That th the thing wasn't a, the thing that inhabited Sheridan wasn't a shadow. It was just like a servant or an associate of the shadows. Uh, I was going to ask since. I didn't think to put this in the notes, but since we know now that like Vorlons are angels, more or less, like, I, I don't know. Are you, I know there's like some like, like new age, 90s mythology about like sex with an angel, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. Do you think there's any connections between that and this? Or do you think this is just kind of like JMS combining like that kind of angel mythos with, you know, the, this kind of new thing? I mean, I don't know the end game here. So if... <laughs> if 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 Alexander gives birth to the uh, to the Vorlon Jesus or something, I don't know. Maybe then it makes it'll make sense, but I don't know what's oh, yeah, going to happen. Yeah. So many so many candidates for uh, Vorlon Jesus. Yeah, I mean, is is, is Alexander going to give birth to uh, Val uh, Valen Valen whatever his name is? <laughs> I Matt, I I thought oral was an alternative to pregnancy. Well, I mean, what else? Like, are they really going to show the other Bob on TV? Like, <laughs> that would just be weird. We could just assume all of her orifices are full of light. <laughs> damn. Damn. I mean, I think, what kind of slash fiction are you reading? That's not even slash fiction. I, that's I, just, I that's just dirty I fan fiction. I am envisioning uh, a, a little twink uh, going up to uh, Kosh and just being like, breed me, daddy. That would yeah. be very funny. This is like some weird anime shit. I mean, that's essentially what Alexander did. She got on a some kind of ship and went out like, I gotta get to the Vorlot homeworld. And then when they when they were sick of her, she's like, put me in the escape pod and I'll just sit in it for five days and starve to death. I got to get to the Vorlot homeworld. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, I don't know. It's like on the one hand, it's it kind of has these connotations of like, you know, saints or other kind of enlightened people going out into the wilderness, going into like extreme circumstances to obtain enlightenment or spiritual clarity or spiritual experience or mystical experience. But on the other hand, uh, Alexander also kind of seems like an addict. That's what I'm getting from her, especially since her return, not, not just this one, but like the other return. She's also kind of a badass now, which she, I don't feel like she was in the TV movie, but there wasn't a lot of time for her in the TV movie to begin with. So I can't really. Yeah. Yeah. She definitely seems to be like more assertive and a, aggressive than she was in the TV movie. Although, yeah, that's kind of hard to say how much of it is supposed to be a character change versus how much of it is just, she has more of a role in this than she did in the TV movie. Yeah. I'm also going to assume too, that a lot of this was probably written for Talia winners before she left. Well, I mean, in a, in a weird sense, it was probably originally written for Lyda Alexander, but then was a change <laughs> to Talia winners and then changed back to Lyda Alexander. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. That's, that's probably true. All right. Uh, I guess I would say for uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode because it's the peak of the series, I think, for most people. I, I, I'd include myself in, in that. So this is the peak of the series, this episode. Yeah, I think this is probably the best episode of the show. OK, it's downhill from here. Is that what you're saying? Uh, I don't think it starts actually sliding downhill till sometime in season four. But oh, okay. I, I think this is the best episode of the show. So we're just at the top of the mountain or at the picnic tables or eating. It's going to be a little while and then it'll yeah, want to go I'm, back down. I'm okay. thinking about shoving you off, but I don't know. Death of personality doesn't sound great. So maybe I won't shove you off the top of the mountain. Okay. 
Yeah. You couldn't you couldn't replace my personality, Bob. There's no way. <laughs> well, it would be my personality that would be replaced, not yours. Personally. Oh, okay. Yours would just be gone. Oh. Yeah, yeah. All right. So I guess the one last thing I'll say about this episode is I'm trying to do a cinematography watch. since The cinematography seems to have gotten a lot more interesting this season. And there's a really nice camera pan uh, where Edward, like, kind of lies down in frame and then... Theo steps back into the frame and is standing over Edward. It's kind of very striking, very evocative uh, use, uh, use of mise-en-scene. I think cinematography watches Bob's way of saying he's going back to film school. I uh, I was never at film school. I, I, mean, I, I guess I meant going back to school to be a filmographer. Film. Yeah, I guess I should call it, like, I, I don't know what I should call it because it's not really cinematography, but photography. Photography watch has other connotations, so that seems wrong. We'll be like JMS doing weird shit with a camera watch. Uh, I mean, it's not really JMS doing it. Oh, it was JMS. Like whatever the dude's what name is. is Matt? Yeah, I know. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. The, 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 the dude he, you talked about he's before. The, he's the annoying guy uh, who uh, was bullying Lanier. I can't remember. Right, that guy. I remember. His I remember. Name. Yeah, that guy watch. <laughs> All right, I'll look up his name and I'll rename it his. I'll rename it his name. Watch. In but then I'll have guy. to be on the. I'll have to be on the lookout for the few episodes where he's not the director of photography, and then I'll have to. I'll have to name it after whoever's doing it for that episode. And before before we switch Bob to DS Nine, let's just talk about Twitter for a second, uh, guys. If you know who the cameraman is, don't tweet him our podcasts. <laughs> We're not going to interview him about his camera angles. I actually wouldn't mind interviewing him. I, I just don't think JMS would do an interview with us, and I don't also don't really want to interview JMS. But the, I mean, you don't have to do it, but I would personally be interested in interviewing the the, the, cam, the, the cameraman, Bob, not JMS. The he's cameraman. He's not the fucking cameraman, Matt. He's the fucking director of photography. That's not the same thing as the fucking cameraman. Sim, sim like, no, the, the dude who picked the camera angles. That guy, the bully. Yes. He's not the cameraman. He's the director of photography. <laughs> What's the difference? I don't know, Bob. What, 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 is, what does the director of photography do? Direct the camera people? They, like, arrange all of the visual stuff. Like, the visual stuff that you like in most movies is more because of them than because of the director, usually. Uh, unlike the actor who played security guard number three, or JMS, <laughs> this guy is an artist, all right? <laughs> Bob's getting real hot on these, uh, hot and horny over these camera angles. <laughs> oh, my God. oh yeah! Look at all this experimental photography. Yeah, there's there's just spirit tendrils coming from the camera into my uh, eyes and mouth. It's it's very hot. And your and your butthole. All right, let's move on to DS Nine. <laughs> and, and, and my urethra dog. Don't leave that. <laughs> I got a narrow urethra. <laughs> and Kosh fixed it. <laughs> yeah, these camera angles are so good, they healed my dick, dog. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, so let's go. <laughs> let's move on to DS9. All right. All right. In the A-plot, Bob, Kira gets a yes. tip from an old colleague about a missing Cardassian... Just the tip about a missing Cardassian prisoner transport while he's being hunted by Tholians in the Badlands, and Kira gets stuck hunting for it with Dukat. Kira is looking for her mentor, Dukat, for his bastard daughter, Tora Zael. 
Zial, I think. Zial, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Zial passes through Gisthemini. <laughs> All right, in the B plot, uh, Yates is taking a job with the Bajoran Commerce Ministry and looking to move on to the station, despite Cisco's reluctance to commitment. So, uh, yeah, this episode, Bob, compared to the B the the B five episode, not a good week for DS nine. Oh, I think this is a good episode. I think there's things about it I don't like, but I would say overall it's a pretty good episode. Yeah, it's it's, it's mediocre at best. Oh, I'd, I'd hard disagree with mediocre. Like Kira and Ducat have really uh, are are really entertaining together. I mean, this is a formula they come back to somewhat often. They also do like a kind of Ducat Cisco. Uh, isolated episode later in the show. Um, but I think it's a good formula. Um, you know, Ducat's obviously a reprehensible human being and his politics are terrible. Uh, but even though it's very social Darwinist, I really enjoyed his description of Bejorans as a uh, weak contemplative people choking on their own isolation. Yeah. The Bajoran people just want to be left alone, Bob, but they do want to join the, uh, the Federation. So it makes no sense. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, there's a lot of good comedy. Like, uh, when uh, Cisco is, uh, you know, complaining to Dax and Bashir and back, uh, yeah, Bashir is just like, well, it could have been worse. You could have said it was a really big step. That really cracked me up. <laughs> the whole B plot in this episode, Bob, is one of those B plots I just didn't like. I'm, 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 I'm sorry, I'm a downer. I'm a sorry, I'm a downer on this episode. I'm just like, eh. I just couldn't get into the B plot either. It just it wasn't my time. Wasn't my cup of tea. I don't know. You know, you, you never said something uh, stupid to a significant other and then uh, had to walk it back. I mean, it's pretty. Uh, well, yeah, Bob. I've done that a lot, but I'm just saying, like, it's just. Yeah, yeah no, I, I've, I've podcasted with you. I can imagine. <laughs> good one. Good one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Put that on the sizzle reel, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, um, I mean, you have Kira pulling the spine out of Ducat's ass, uh, which very much reminds me of the Deadwood scene when uh, Al passes the gleet. Uh, yeah, good stuff, good stuff. Yeah, we really need a meme of Kira behind Ducat removing the spine. Oh, there, there is a meme of that. that okay, I, thank God. I, I didn't have time to find it before uh, recording, but yeah, that, that, that meme exists. I've seen it. Yeah, hit us at Uncanny Tricks with some of those memes, folks. We like yeah. seeing our Kira behind Ducat memes. Yeah, Bob wants Bob doesn't mind you tweeting at the uh, director of photography for Babylon Five, and he loves it when you tweet memes at him. Just yep. don't tag JMS, dear God. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Is this the first time we learned that Ducat has a wife and seven kids? Yeah, we learned that he. We knew he was a father at some point. I don't remember when, but he does mention to Cisco that he's a father in the mm -hmm. way earlier episode, but we didn't know he had seven children and we didn't know he was married. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, and so has, have they mentioned the Vulcan restaurant on station before? I don't think so. No, this is the first I've heard of it. I feel like they might've, but I don't know for sure. Yeah, I'm assuming the know. food though is very bland and like, yeah, I was going to ask if you have any speculations about Vulcan food. I, I imagine it as being kind of like, I don't know, like Moroccan food. I, I had that in Memphis <laughs> a couple times. Like, uh, I think it's just purely for substance. I don't think it's like, I, I would think it's just like crackers or shit. Rations. <laughs> <laughs> Man, are, are you trying to call the Vulcans white bread, dog? Yeah, just saying. <laughs> and this is the first time we see the Breen, although they were mentioned several times on next generation apparently they were kind of a running joke on the next generation 
Any uh, any thoughts about the Breen? Yeah, when I first saw them, their outfits looked like Princess Leia at the beginning of Return of the Jedi, and not the bikini outfit. Yeah, talking about yeah, the the, the Bausch disguise. The name? Okay. Bausch. Yeah, Bausch. Yeah, the Bausch disguise. Are yeah, sure that's exactly. But I, I don't care. I had the action figure. It was it. <laughs> as long as you have the action figure, who gives a shit? Is, is it Bausch, Boosh? I don't know. She wore it for like 20 seconds. I don't know. It, it, but anyway. She, enough uh, for an action figure, Matt. Enough for me to remember it, too, because it looks just like this. It looks like they just repainted it. So, good job. Yeah, yeah. I I think the theory which Ducat references in this episode is that the... Uh, the Breen come from a cold uh, Arctic world, hence the hence the suits. Although there's also, I think in the novels it comes out that like the Breen are actually like several species, and they wear the suits more to disguise that fact. So that's what I was wondering. We never actually see them underneath the mask because we see Kira and Dukat both take off their mask. So that's really not their species. That's just a that's just the outfit they wear for their you know mining or whatever they're doing. Yeah, and I'm really behind on the DS9 novels, but apparently we do see them at some point in like the post DS9 novels. I mean, I'll, as much as yeah, as much as you can see something in a novel at least described in detail. Indeed, indeed. Uh, I did enjoy the. Joran mining slave, uh, who's you know been coerced by the brain, not understanding that the occupation is over, and being very confused that Kira isn't deferring to Dakot. That was a really neat moment. Yeah, that was really smart writing on their part. I, I thought, yeah, these people wouldn't have a clue that the war was on hiatus. So, yeah, yeah. Well, more, more, I guess the occupation than the, the war occupation. Just, yeah, sorry, yeah, the occupation, occupation yeah. with the resistance. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Did you have any thoughts on Tora Zial as a character? Since she'll be a somewhat important character coming out from here. I mean, not really. I like how they combined. She looks like a Cardassian, but she has the nose ridges. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, like, I. It wasn't a promising beginning. Like her wanting her dad to kill her rather than reject her was like really weird and disgusting. Like that, that's kind of like, what's, what's your deal towards y'all? You can have an independent identity. You got that Bajoran Cardassian teen angst, Bob. I, that's more than teen angst, dog. That's like some <laughs> cult stuff. Like most teen girls are not like, if you don't love me, daddy, I'm going to kill myself. That's, they might kill just kill me, dad. Things. Just kill me. Yeah. That's, that's weird. Or tell me I'm right. <laughs> So, have you ever seen the John Wayne film, The Searchers? No, Bob, I haven't seen that movie. Okay, so the end of this is totally a, a riff on that. Like, The Searchers is cool because it's basically, as far as I know, the only John Wayne movie where, like, John Wayne plays an anti-hero and he plays, like, an overt racist. So, he's hunting down uh, this girl and he wants to kill her. And then at the end of the movie, he can't bring himself to kill her and says, let's go home. So... Obviously, that you know the parallels with this are pretty clear. I think what you're saying, Bob, is there's a movie out there where John Wayne's character has a uh, insert race other than white here. What is it? Black? No, no, Indian? She's, no, uh, overtly she's his niece. Um, although there's some implication in the film that she might actually be his daughter, because it's like his it's his brother's kid. But, like, there's subtle things in the performance that make it look like John Wayne, like, loved his brother's wife before his brother married her. And so he, 
she might have like married uh the brother like while pregnant with john wayne's kid but, but it's not that's just like kind of it's it's saying it's subtext is too slight but it's not it's not overt but it's either his niece or his daughter but she gets uh kidnapped uh by the comanche in a raid and so uh, John Wayne and Jeffrey Hunter, who played uh, uh, Pike on uh, The Cage, who plays his like teen sidekick. The movie came out like in '56. They hunt, um, they hunt his niece or daughter for like ten years, and so by the time they find her, she's like, you know, she's basically like assimilated to being a Comanche woman, and so Wayne wants to kill her because he's a racist, and you know, like it's like, oh, she'd be better off dead than as an you know living as a Comanche woman. Like that's his thinking, at least going in. That that's Did completely ever, different than what I imagined. The, yeah, in your original. Did you ever see Taxi Driver? Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, yeah, Taxi Driver is kind of a remake of The Searchers. Like, uh, you know, Harvey Keitel at the end is a pimp named Scar. Yeah, the so the the kind of main antagonist to John Wayne is a Comanche named Scar, and then there's a lot of other kind of like, there's a lot of other. Um, similar shots in Taxi Driver and the Searchers and um, what's her face, Jodie Foster in Taxi Driver. She's basically playing the role of niece or not. No, sorry. Who's, who's the kid in Taxi Driver? Is it Natalie Wood? Yes, I think so. Whoever the kid is, I can't remember if it's Natalie Wood or Jodie Foster, but whoever the young girl that like John Wayne or that Travis Bickle tries to rescue in the Taxi Driver is basically the equivalent to John Wayne's daughter or niece in the Searchers. Yeah, I, I, I've never heard of this film of The Searchers, but now I kind of want to watch it maybe because it sounds kind of interesting. Uh, you will probably find it underwhelming, but it's a beautiful movie. <laughs> um, one one other thing about does it have it, a po- does it have a post credit scene, Bob? No, no. Damn it. Okay, yeah, you're probably right. I won't find it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what what other thing about it? Um, you remember the scenes in Star Wars Four where the Luke's farm is uh, burned by the by the stormtroopers posing as sand people. Yes, I do remember yeah, that. Yeah, those, those. Yeah, those. Uh, those shots are directly lifted from the Searchers. Like oh, not okay. the not like well not they're not directly lifted but they're directly modeled or directly imitating the Searchers. So does John Wayne's character get just as upset as Luke Skywalker about his like proto parents getting killed? Yeah, sort of. Which means not. Which means not it's, at all. It's not as a, uh, it's not as proto parents. It's his brother, his sister in law, and then their their other kids. Oh. well, Bob probably not going to watch this film. No, I didn't. I didn't assume you would. You Philistine. Thank you for the summary. And what if I made an NFT of Matt? Would you watch it? Then? <laughs> Yes, Bob, I would. You, <laughs> and you, I would pay $8,000 for it. <laughs> An NFT of John Wayne standing over but not killing his uh, his daughter who is assimilated to Comanche ways. <laughs> yes. To, I guess, get back on track, I really did enjoy uh, Yates' burn on Cisco. Jake's a smart boy, must take after his mother. Yeah, uh, like I said before, Bob, I did not care for the B-plot in this episode but i really i do appreciate though the extremely subtle hints of yates deception 
Because that was planted very early on, and you don't catch it until you've rewatched this a couple of what times. Were the, what were the subtle hints? I think I missed that when I was watching this one. Because she legit wants to get closer to Cisco. The whole idea of her getting closer oh, to Cisco is not that oh, she okay. wants to be with him. It's that she wants to be able to know what's going on in DS9 all the okay, damn time. I see, yeah, I see what you're laying down. Yeah. I, I think that's like a good reading and a very defensible reading. I, do you think that's actually what they were going for? I don't, I don't care, but in my brain it works better and makes Yates more okay with me. So, Yeah, because, I mean, like I said, I, I like that reading, but it, it just seems like the subsequent stuff show, has the show being, like, more invested in, like, the sincerity of the Cisco and Yates relationship, whereas, like, you're, like, that reading is so cynical, it kind of implies that, like, Yates has no feelings for him at all. She's just doing this solely to inform. I think she falls in love with him as she deceives him. Yeah, yeah, which could be a good point that they could, they could have developed that a little more. Like the question of how much, how much was she just trying to seduce him, and then she actually fell in love with him versus you know, I, which is not something that I remember the show really takes up. Yeah. All right, Bob. Character of the week for this week. Yep. Lida Alexander. All right. Well, since it's the only time I can pick him, I'm going to go ahead and go with uh, Brother Edward. Brother Edward. Yeah, R.I.P. to a real one. Episode of the week, Bob. Passing through Gethsemane. Oh, you nailed it, Matt. You nailed it. You did it so good, I'm not even going to try and say it. But that's also my episode. Great job. Yeah. Babylon 5 killed it this week, in my opinion. Could you really pronounce it the whole time and you were just fucking with me? That's right, Bob. It was just a a kosh fuck right there. I was going to say you're my own personal Cassidy Yates, but... Uh, I mean, if you want to put your spirit tendrils in me, Matt, I guess you can. Uh, yeah, Bob, reaching across the country, my spirit tendrils. <laughs> oh my God, it's coming out of the speakers. It's coming through my headphones. Yeah. Oh, it's in my ear. In God, Valen's name, Bob, in Valen's name. <laughs> well, when you say it like that, it makes it okay. Uh, yeah. I, I, such a release in my eardrums. Oh, this feels so good. Gross. Uh, my yep. hearing, it's improving. All right. Thank you. Thank you for that uh, that spirit tendril ear job, Matt. I've enjoyed it. You're welcome. I guess I should have of... gone with umlocks. That would That's be the thing I... to go for. Damn it. You took the joke out of my mouth where I get the word out. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Bob. You got you got you to be sharp if you want to riff with the big boys, Matt. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, the... Uh, the guy uh, getting his uh, ears uh, fucked by a pair of spirit tendrils was Bob in Cascadia. The guy with the spirit tendrils was Matt in the Southland. We are Babylon 5 versus DS9. Have a good night, everybody. Thanks for listening. <laughs>